bow before you and we thank you so much for lives that are changed. We believe, we are not ashamed in the power of the gospel. Lord, it is effective. It is sufficient. It is the only thing that can transform a life completely both now and forever. And so, Lord, we thank you for those who have chosen to follow you. And we pray over them and ask your protection on their lives that they would grow and be discipled in their newfound faith. Lord, we also pray that there would be more, a harvest of people who come to know you, not for the sake of numbers, not for the sake of of our glory, but for the sake of your glory, Lord. Help us to be faithful, to proclaim your good news. Help us to have the faith that you still move in this way and that you'll use us in the weaknesses of our efforts to move in powerful ways for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series in Genesis chapters 37 to 50, which we have titled, Worst Thing, Best Thing. And so this morning I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 48, verses 1 through 22. Young disciples, if you have your sermon guides, that's the passage that you need to write down. If you don't have your sermon guides, they're right over here on the table. You can find that passage on page 41 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. A little bit about today's sermon. The title is God My Shepherd. And there are going to be two truths that lead to two applications for us. They are mature believers remember God's faithful shepherding in the past. And second, mature believers trust God's faithful shepherding in the future. Now, since today's passage is so long, rather than asking you to stand to read it all at once, I'm going to read it verse by verse as we go through it. But still, in this moment, let's choose to intentionally posture our hearts in such a way that we can say of God's word, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. Well, last week I had the joy of hearing something I've been longing to hear ever since I became a parent. Daddy, can we watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And I was like, child, I bless you. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You see, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was my childhood favorite, and I had all the stuff down to the Ninja Turtle tidy whities to prove it, Okay. Now, I'd forgotten how much of the story is built around this severe contrast, this old master splinter and these young teenagers, the Ninja Turtles, his maturity and their immaturity. Now, in the particular episode that we were watching, Master Splinter was teaching Raphael, that's the one with the, with the red who carries the size, Um, Splinter was teaching Raphael how to control his youthful pride because every time someone insulted him, Raphael would go crazy and try to get revenge on them and cause a big explosion that was totally unnecessary. And Splinter could teach this because in his own youthful pride earlier in his life, he had cost himself greatly. You see, someone had insulted him, and rather than ignoring that, he sought revenge. And in the war that ensued, it ended up taking the life of his precious wife. And so, over and over, in the story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the old master is the true hero of the story. But that's not who we focus on at all, is it? No, we focus on the teens. Why? 
Well, because in our culture, we have a high value on being young. That is, in being able to trust in the power of your own strength. Now, interestingly, what we read in Genesis, and we often read into, is a focus on Joseph, the young hero, right? And yet the closer the author gets to the end of the book of Genesis, the more we see this section is actually just a continuation of the last patriarch, Jacob. Now, I think this is for a couple of reasons. One, God is teaching us of his faithfulness over the course of a lifetime and the special importance of what we in our culture call the golden years, that season at the end of your life. And second, this is taking us back to the beginning of Genesis. Remember what God had set as the purpose for creating people. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, And God blessed them to be a blessing. He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. It was a worldwide purpose. Now, they were blessed to be a blessing to the whole world. But how would they embody that after they, in chapter 3, rebel against God? They, and in them us, become a people who only want to fill the world with our own glory. We say things like, how can this family bless me? How can this land or these possessions bless me? How can this work bless me? And yet, here by the end of Genesis... Through the gracious, faithful shepherding of God, we see a mature believer becoming more and more of who God created him to be. In the golden years of his life, and yet still growing. He's fruitful, he's multiplying, and he's doing so in a way that will begin to fill the earth and bless the world. So let's look at how it happens in two parts. First, mature believers remember God's faithful shepherding in the past. So read with me beginning in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. Now this may sound familiar to you because it's the same scenario as back in chapter 27. The aging father looks to pass on God's promised blessing to his son. Now here Jacob is already in the shoes of his father. Life has flown by. And as young people, we tend to live as though our day will never come, right? Oh, that day's so far out there. And yet we will turn around and it will be here. It's nearer than we think. And when it comes... Will we summon our strength to sit up and pass on blessing? That's the question today. Now, what is it that gives Jacob the maturity to do this? Verse 3. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So Jacob has the maturity to not just bless himself at this point because he remembers God's faithful shepherding in the past. It's kind of like this. He says, I can bless you because God blessed 
me. I can show up for you even when my strength is gone because God showed up for me when my strength was gone. At the end of his life, he still has in mind what? Kind of like that conversion experience back at Luz when God revealed himself and expressed his grace and said, I am going to change your life forever. Not because you're a good guy, you're a terrible guy, but because I love you and that's how my grace works. He's still looking back to that point. Will we, in our golden years, still look back to that day when God, by his grace, came to Changed our lives. And so the scriptures often come alive to me through music. I don't know about you. And so the background music of this chapter that's kind of played in my head all week comes from this old hymn by Fanny Crosby. It says this, All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his faithful mercies? Who through life has been my guide? So picture Jacob like energized by this panoramic view of his life, which, by the way, a panoramic view of your life only comes near the end of your life. Okay, And he's saying, God, my shepherd promised, and even though that promise is not yet fulfilled, I will not die feeling sorry for myself, but I will bless those who come after me. I will pass the baton. Can you imagine a relay race where one of those four racers was so selfish that they did not want the next person to grab the baton and run after them, and they just dropped it? Oh my goodness, they ruined the whole race. But Jacob chooses not to do that here. Verse 5, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. Now what's Jacob doing here? Well, he's adopting Jacob's two sons as his own. And that means that he is giving a double birthright blessing to Joseph. Now 1 Chronicles chapter 5 explains it like this. Reuben's birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now this would forever change the structure and the story of the twelve tribes of Israel. And that's a very important historical point in the scriptures. But the main point was that Jacob was acting in faith, That God would keep his promise. That God would shepherd his people to be fruitful and multiply. That God would give them a piece of earth to subdue and have dominion over such that they might bless the whole world. So do you see the maturity in the man who used to only trust in his own strength? You see it there? This is the power of the golden years placed in the hands of God. We do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Though the outer self is wasting away, strength drying up, the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the power of the golden years in the hands of God. And it makes you a person who can look back on even your worst unresolved pain 
The things that you don't want to think about and rest in the faithful shepherding of God. You see it for Jacob in verse 7. Look at this. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. What's the connection here? Why does he go here? Well, Jacob started this conversation by mentioning God revealing himself to him at a place called Bethel. And guess what else the memory of Bethel brings up? Rachel. And guess what that brings up? Great pain. Pain that will not be fully healed on this side of heaven. Why? Because that's where they had just set out when his beloved Rachel died. In the face of death, he's feeling that pain still. Thus, for Jacob, there is the temptation here to either, one, ignore that pain, act like it's not there, or two, to fixate on it, right? To focus on it so much that that it defines all of life. That loss could easily come to define Bethel for him. But, he summons his strength to not let it. He acknowledges it as the place of loss, but then redefines it as the place of blessing. Thus, we see in Jacob a great example here for us. A few people in our time that come to mind when I've thought of this, one would be Elizabeth Elliot. Probably know her as the wife of Jim Elliot, who was martyred in Ecuador. When he was martyred, she had a 10-month-old daughter. And yet, she chose to, with her daughter, continue ministering, even living among the very people who killed her husband. And then went on to write many books and speak profoundly about her experiences. And God used her in amazing ways. See, the place of loss became the place of blessing. Or also, if you've heard of the name Corrie ten Boone, who is the author of The Hiding Place. She lived during World War II, and she was a Dutch Christian who helped to hide Jewish people from Nazis. But then she was caught and put into a concentration camp herself. And yet out of that experience, she began a ministry of writing and speaking that would lead many people all over the world to Christ, including former Nazis. Or I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who, when she was 17 years old, dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and it was too shallow, and she shattered a couple of vertebrae and became a quadriplegic. And yet, she has gone on to write over 40 books and to have a ministry raising up care and concern for those with disabilities like her. The place of loss became the place of blessing. It was the worst thing in God's hands becoming the best thing. You see that? And if that can be true for them, why can't it be true for us? Why can't it be true for us? For you. This is a picture of a mature believer remembering God's faithful shepherding in the past. Which then allows for this mature believers also trusting God's faithful shepherding in the future. They go together. Jacob's further turn toward the future begins in verse 8. He says this When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him 
and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Now once again, this should take us back to chapter 27, where the aging Isaac was about to bless the wrong son. Remember that? But here's the beauty of the deep inner transformation that God has done in Jacob over these years. This time around, Jacob doesn't follow in his father's footsteps. And there's no deceiving. Jacob embraces and kisses the boys affectionately. It's out of love that he blesses. Not selfishness like his father. And then right out in the open for all to see, he breaks with human tradition. He put his right hand of blessing on the second born son Ephraim and his left on Manasseh, the firstborn. Young disciples, this is the son of Joseph that Jacob blesses first, Ephraim. Now, think of it like this. Let's say a family has a ton of money in the family. Um, Father passes away. The family has gathered together. The executor is getting ready to dole out the will. And everybody knows that the inheritance is going to go to the firstborn child who's been extremely faithful all the way to the end, cared for the father all the way up and to his death. And when the executor's words come out, the inheritance goes to not the firstborn faithful, but to the lastborn unfaithful, who's not even there because that child is in jail for such a terrible life that that child has lived. Can you imagine what would be going through the room in that moment? It wouldn't be like, oh, that was a surprise, huh? Right? No, everybody's mouths would be open. The the tension, the awkwardness in the room, you could cut it with a knife, right? So that's the kind of feeling that must be happening here. And listen, this is a communal society. This is probably not happening in private. There are probably other people gathered around observing what's happening between uh, Jacob and Joseph and Joseph's sons here. And so... The awkwardness is in the room. What gave Jacob the audacity, the maturity to do something like this instead of just going along with human tradition? We'll skip down to verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Now when Jacob says, I know, my son, I know, It's not like when we say, I know, I know, right? It's more in this sense, I know something, okay? And I want you to note here this doubling theme. You remember that from a few chapters ago? He says, I know, I know. 
That is, the thing is set by God, and he will bring it about. What is it that Jacob knows for certain that gives him the maturity to do something so audacious and breaking with expectations? Yes, some measure he knows of future prophecy about the boys. But more than that, he knows God's heart. Remember, he himself is a second-born who was chosen to be first from the womb. He understands this. He knows the way of grace. Grace is not you you get it because you deserve it. No, grace is you don't deserve it at all, and yet you get it anyways. And it makes you humble and grateful and selfless and thankful. He knows God's upside-down ways of grace. And we read about them in Isaiah chapter 55. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the distance between human tradition and expectation over here, and God's grace over here. So vastly different. And the more familiar with God's ways that you become, the more you expect Him to break with human tradition. The more you expect Him to surprise you in how He's going to work out a situation. And the more that you surrender to His ways, the more it sets you free. Free to what? Free to trust Him. Which, by the way, what is at the heart of a relationship? Trust. And that's what he wants. To give you an example, you guys have heard me say this before, but I share it with you again. Over the course of COVID and all the craziness that happened, there develops for me this deep personal hashtag. Okay, I know that's a little good to make a connection. Let me explain it to you. That hashtag being, not my church. Now, that's not in the sense of like, well, this is not my church. I don't care. I'm not associated with this. But in the sense of like, I don't own this church. Like, it doesn't have to look exactly like I want it to look in order for me to be a faithful shepherd or member within it. It's not my church. You know what that brought? Freedom. It goes from this to this. And so I want to ask you, in light of God's upside-down ways, as you surrender to them, what could become your hashtag, not my, not my job, not my money, not my children, not my house, not my time, not my future. Yours, Lord. And there's freedom in that for you, church. There's freedom in that. But again, what gave Jacob the maturity to do this? And I think the answer and the heart of this passage is in verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
Now the days of the years of Jacob's life have been few and evil. He acknowledges that. But here is the definitive rewritten script at the end of his life. Not who he has been, but who God has been. In three ways. First, the God before whom my fathers walked. You see, this shows Jacob's remembrance of the past well beyond his own life. This has been a source of comfort for him many times over the years. He goes back. And it can be a source of comfort for us too. Y'all think about this. Jacob had two generations to look back upon to be encouraged in hard times. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and 2,000 years of church history to encourage us in hard times. Let's look back. God's not done yet. He hasn't given up. Let's look back. This is the God before whom our fathers walked. Second, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. And this has been the most impactful line of the passage for me this week. And this is why I took from it the title of today's sermon. Long before Psalm 23, here is an old shepherd who knows the constant, intimate requirements of caring for sheep, right? I was explaining this to one of my children yesterday. I was like, okay, so Jacob says that God is a shepherd. Do you know what a shepherd does? And she was like, no. And I said, well, a shepherd, does a shepherd um, have to feed the sheep constantly? Yes. Does a shepherd have to bring the sheep to water constantly? Yes. Does the sheep have to clean up after the, the sheep you know, goes to the bathroom? Yes. Does the, sheep have, does the shepherd have to watch over the sheep at night so nothing gets after them? Yes. Does the, sheep have to carry, does the shepherd have to carry the sheep when they're hurt? Yes. On and on and on. Is that a lot to do? She's like, yes. That's a lot of work. That's very intimate, very dirty work. And I was like, yes, okay. Jacob is saying... That God has done that kind of work for him. She was like, whoa. That's right. That's what God does for us. And listen, get that imagery into not just your head, but your heart. And let it move you. Okay? You know in your head, everybody in this room has heard, the Lord is my shepherd. You know it. But get it into your heart and let it move you. That he would care for you in every intimate moment. Of your life. Third, Jacob says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, this is still in reference to God Himself. Remember that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is often a theophany, that is, an appearance of God himself. And specifically, it's probably pointing to the climactic moment in Jacob's life when he wrestled with who? The angel. Of the Lord. And the angel dislocated his hip and he was rescued from the worst of all evils. You know what the worst of all evils is? Trusting in yourself. That's the worst of all evils because that is at the heart of what does not allow you to have a relationship with God. Remember, trust is at the heart of all relationships. Well, to trust in yourself means that you cannot have a relationship with a God who is trustworthy. And so the imagery may be different, but this is simply, I think, an ongoing picture of God as shepherd. Remember what David says. 
Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I brought this with me this morning to give you an example. What exactly is the rod and the staff? Is it two different implements that the shepherd carries? Maybe, but in most cases, it's just one thing. And it serves two purposes. The staff is that which the shepherd carries as a picture of guiding the sheep. He's on a journey with the sheep. He protects the sheep from enemies. But then the rod also is what? That which he uses, as Pastor Chachamon so vividly illustrated for us a couple weeks ago, to correct the sheep, to keep them in line. Hey, don't stay, get off the highway. Come over here, quit fighting. And sometimes give them a good whack, right? David says, I am comforted by this. Why? Because to have a good shepherd, if you are a wayward sheep, means you need to be wrangled. All right, we've used the language of being broken, tamed. But today I want to use the word wrangled. And this is maturity. And that which allowed Jacob to bless. Remember, it was his wrestling with the angel where he finally received God's blessing. And this is where the name of Israel itself comes from. It literally means he who wrestles with God. And so to be among the people of God is to be wrangled. He's got me. And I'm okay with that. So this is the name that Jacob blesses the boys to carry on. The name by which they will grow and they will bless the nations. Verse 20. And so he blessed them that day saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you. And will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Notice that this is not Jacob the curmudgeon. Who watches news all day long. And only pauses it long enough to look at you and complain about the world. And to complain about his life and all his aches and pains. That's not Jacob that we see here, is it? This is Jacob the worshiper. Trusting God with the future. In fact, this is what he is going to be remembered for throughout the rest of human history. You realize that? That all the many amazing things about your life and who you are, down the road, you will probably be summed up in one way. Is that fair? I don't know, but that's reality. What will that one way be? Well, here, here's what it is for Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And so we read this scene like an appliance manual, okay? But really, we should be reading it more like a death scene in a movie. And the background music that carries that scene and moves us so deeply would go something like this. When my spirit Clothed immortal, wings its flight to realms of day. This my song through endless ages. Jesus led me all the way. This is the picture of a mature believer trusting God's faithful shepherding in the future.
And during my years at Antioch, I have gotten to see some real-life examples of mature believers like this, some of whom have even already passed away. And it wasn't that they did lots of things to bless others. Like, you know, it wasn't like they were volunteering for every role and leading everything in the church. Their, their human strength was, was literally di- drying up. So it wasn't so much that they did lots of things to bless others, but it was that they kept the faith to the end and they continued to spiritually show up and to pass the baton. Some examples, Miss Louise Jenkins. Some of you who are newer don't know her, but she was a part of this congregation when it merged with, uh, with the church that was here. That's right, Miss Louise, was, she was a real deal, man. She was a real deal. Um, was originally a member at New Heights Baptist Church, but when we merged, she, she chose to be a part of this congregation, even though that had to be a challenging thing to do with a bunch of, of young, young folks. Um, also think of Jack Mitchell, who was part of this church for a short period of time, but continued to show up spiritually, even though he wasn't able to often attend with us. I think of others in later seasons of life, beginning all the way back to the very beginning of Antioch Church with Lynn and Suzanne Gross, and others who, within the last even few months, have chosen to join this church and intentionally joining a young church in order to give something sacred to future generations. Those are the examples that come to my mind, that move my heart, that make me thankful that you all that I'm talking about right now are in our midst. You matter, okay? I don't care what the culture says. You matter. We need you. We do. And if you're a young person in this room and you realize that you don't think they matter and that you don't need them, then I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. See these people, these older saints, as people whom you need to know how to be faithful all the way to the end. And just like Jacob in verse 22, look at him. He says, Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow, back when I had the strength to do it. And now I know that seems like an obscure detail to add at the end of the chapter. But it may be the most important detail of all in this whole passage. Let me explain. You see, the conquered land that he gives here is going to show up again in the Bible in John chapter 4. There we read this. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now the story goes on to tell how a Samaritan woman comes to the well. And she comes at that time of day when no one else would because she's marginalized from her community. Because she's had five husbands. And she's living with a man who currently is not her husband. And Jesus breaks with human tradition and he talks with her. And he reveals not only her need for a Savior, but that he is that Savior. And she believes. And guess what she does? She passes it on. And everyone in her town comes. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This was the ultimate sacred thing that Jacob was giving to future generations. Man, he didn't know exactly what this was going to look like. But when he trusted that God's blessing would come, 
He was pointing to nothing less than the Savior of the world. The Savior who came to rescue you from all evil. The greatest of which is what? Trusting in yourself. The Savior who embodied the upside-down ways of God. The way of the throne? Nah. The way of the cross. And when he suffers and dies for your sins, here's what's happening. He, the firstborn faithful son, who deserves all the inheritance, switches places with you, the lastborn unfaithful son or daughter. And you know what that is? It's grace. You don't deserve it. But he gives it to you freely to humble you, to make you thankful, to make you trust him. And then he rises from the dead so that the place of his greatest loss can be the place of your greatest blessing. His worst thing, your best thing. You see it? And so my question for you today is, has he wrangled you? And if he has not, then I plead with you today that if you've seen his heart and his glory on display at all in his word, then would you turn away from trusting in yourself, saying, I can be good enough, I can be strong enough. God will be pleased with me. He will say yes when I stand before him someday because he'll know I did more good in my life than I did bad. No, that's trusting in yourself. Turn away from that and trust in him. And he will give you his grace. And with it, he will give you the power to then go and bless people. To not hoard your time, not to hoard your money, not to hoard your children, to hoard everything in your life, but to give it away freely, delightedly. Because you love him. And if he has wrangled you, then this is my application for you from this passage. First, Remember God's faithful shepherding in the past. This is not passive activity. Profound change in Jacob has come. He has gone from, woe is me, I'm as good as dead, to the God who has been my shepherd my whole life long. I don't care how long that you have been a believer. There are places, there are areas in your life, in your story of regret, of unresolved pain, and of bitterness that need rewritten scripts. God wants to reveal himself to you in the fullness of your story. Okay, He's not satisfied with you just getting busy with activity so that you can forget the pain of your past. He wants to redeem your entire story. He wants whole people. Okay, Not parts of people. He didn't just buy what he could get out of you when he died on the cross. He bought all of you. All the mess that comes with it. And he wants to heal it. And so, for example, you're like, I don't even know what that looks like. Well, we're developing some things with Antioch Care and Counseling where we can tangibly help you to work through some of those things from your past. And so if that interests you, please talk to me about that. That's the first application. The second one's connected to it. Trust God's faithful shepherding then in the future. This also is not passive activity. 
Actively trusting means actively pointing to the Savior of the world. It means wanting others to go farther than you, pass the baton in such a way that they will run the race farther and faster than you ran it. And so the question remains, what is keeping you from blessing others? What is keeping you from spiritually showing up? You may be physically showing up, but all of us know how to physically show up in church and not really spiritually show up. You're not really there, right? You're just there. What's keeping you from fully, as a whole person, spiritually showing up? What is keeping you from continuing to wrestle with God and be wrangled? You will be remembered for one thing, probably. What will that one thing be? Based on how you are entrusting God with the future. Now for an example here, if you like, okay, what does that look like? How would I actually make that happen? We're launching a simple English Bible study on Sunday mornings, and we're kicking off our second semester of ESL. It's going to need people to jump in there and serve people who are literally from other parts of the world, and you can bless them in very simple, tangible ways that hopefully will lead to being able to communicate the gospel to them. There you go. There's a way to trust God's faithful shepherding in the future, to show up spiritually. In Psalm 23, David says this, You set a table before me. Remember that? Church, your shepherd has set a table before you, and he stands by with his rod and his staff to wrangle you just a little bit more today. And that's what communion is all about. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, we are announcing that in Jesus Christ, we can say, God, my shepherd, wrangle me down. Have your way. Our tradition here is to come forward. If Jesus is truly your shepherd already and you've chosen to follow him, to stop trusting in yourself, to come and break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice and to take it, remembering what he has done for you, proclaiming what he will do for you. As a part of being wrangled means you come broken, and if he's convicted you of sin, you're confessing that to him. You're open before him. Now, if you are not under the shepherding of Jesus and you've realized that this morning, do not come to this table. It's not for you. This is just a symbol of the reality. Come to the reality. The reality is Jesus Christ himself longing to shepherd you and proving it because he went all the way to the cross and out of the empty tomb in order to make it possible. Come to him today. And that means, practically, come back to one of us who are standing in the back, so that we can counsel with you, so we can pray with you, so we can celebrate with you. All right? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. We give praise to you because you are God, our shepherd. There is none like you. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of your word, for the power of what you did in and through Jacob, so that even this day, the one thing that we remember about him that stands out to us is that he put his trust in you at the end of his life and he continued to show up and bless others. 
And that has blessed us today. Thank you, Lord. Could our lives be leveraged in this regard? Lord, would you wrangle those who know you just a little bit more this morning so that just a little bit more of our lives might come under your shepherding? That we might continue to trust the past into your hands and trust the future into your hands, especially in uncertain times. And Lord, for those who are not under your shepherding yet, may this be a continuation of what we've already been seeing in our midst as people coming in submission to you, stopping the trust in themselves and starting the trust that is in your hands. Have your way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.